When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. I'm delighted to say I am joined for today's Bigger Picture by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Now, we would normally touch on the, the big, the contemporary uh, issues. Um, we could be talking about Ukraine, we could talk about Partygate, we could talk about Boris and whether he's going to survive. But we, we were talking about quite a lot of that before uh, when we talked last time, Tim. So let's just try and do something a little fresher and different. I'm saying this as if it's my idea, but of course it's not, it's yours. <laughs> um, oh. But let us, let us talk about some other things. I think people would probably be rather glad of that. Indeed, whether, whether you know, if we, if we had another conversation about Boris or Putin or any of these characters, um, we talk about them so much, don't we? That, that I think we should raise our gaze and go elsewhere. Um, yes. So I'm um, very interested um, in some of the ideas that are out there at the moment about us being fundamentally at the end of an era. It's often said by various historians, uh, Stephen Davis has made the point um, in, in a book recently, that often when you have a pandemic, um, if, you, if you look through history, often they do denote somehow the end of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a political and economic era. And I think lots of people are speculating if this is not the case uh, now. Globalisation as we've known it um, has really existed for the last 30 years. And, and the modern version of globalisation um, really got into its stride with the fall of communism. I say the second age of globalisation, by the way, because, of course, um, in the late Victorian period and in the early Edwardian period, around 1900, 1910, many people think that that was indeed the first great modern era of globalisation. Extraordinary interconnectivity for the first time yes. through things like wireless telegraphy. Yes. It, it was really incredible. It was one of the reasons many people thought we wouldn't go to war, was because nations were so interconnected. Exactly. And, and, and here we are again, trying not to talk about Putin, hmm. Ukraine, or Russia. But um, it's certainly the case that in the last 30 years, millions and millions of people have indeed been liberated out of poverty. There are more democracies than ever. Uh, we're thankfully inhabiting a world of more rights for women, uh, lots more rights for all kinds of minorities. Uh, and supply chains, you know, crisscross the world uh, as never before, including that late Victorian or Edwardian period. Mm. Um, so that, uh, there have been extraordinary changes, and this has affected all of us, even down to the way we access food, the sort of foods we consume. I mean, you know, I, I was born in the, in, the, in the 60s, in the late 70s, an exotic food um, came in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a packet called Vesta, um, and you sort of boiled in the bag job where you'd cook noodles or... You, know, you, could, you could only get olive oil by going to the chemist. It was considered to be useful for getting wax out of ears. There we are. I mean, it, the world, yeah. particularly to young people, it, it would be unrecognisable. Mm. 
But um, the question is, has all of that run its course? You know, debt now, particularly in the West, is at the highest level it's been since uh, the, the period of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and whilst some countries like Ireland and the Netherlands have narrowed their inequalities, you know, the gaps between rich and poor, most other countries have not. And certainly um, Russia and the United States are almost outliers there. The gap in those two countries between the poorest and the rich is in some ways obscene. Um, and what's interesting, isn't it, about this global pandemic is there has been no real pulling together. There's no been, there's been no sense of global um, fellow feeling or, or unity. In fact, what you've had is people trying to steal intellectual property rights, mm. people trying to get their or in first and order vaccines early over and above others. You've had all kinds of hacking of different research centers, pharmaceutical companies, universities. It's been really very grubby. So for me, I think the question is what on earth next? And while the past was about shrinking the world, I, for most of my life, there's been that sense of the world getting smaller, people traveling more, communicating more, trading more, you know, as getting to know each other more intimately on this fragile world. I think that the future is going to be different in the sense that there will be rival um, collaborative forms of statecraft focused on values. Um, think of great sheets of ice sort of breaking apart. Whereas Google uh, uh, used to have uh, a, a reasonable market share, for example, uh, in China, Google today is virtually unknown. Yeah. And um, China has sort of created its own sort of fortress internet. It has an extremely advanced uh, world of e-commerce, uh, but it, it is sort of sli slightly separa separating itself. Uh, uh, in Britain and America, we prize innovation uh, and, and have our own version of the internet, whereas in the EU, they're very much focused on, or they obsess about, privacy and protecting people's data. And these values are, are perhaps what's going to drive the future. So one example is, um, and this is, this is not original for me, there are TED Talks on this, um, but Scotland, Iceland and New Zealand two or three years ago, signed an agreement, it's called the Wellbeing Economy Governments, where they have sought each other out on the basis of similar values. And they think that well-being um, of citizens and people should, should have an, a, a lot of attendant government policies and that governments shouldn't purely and simplistic and in a sort of reductionist manner just focus on GDP. So the question is, will the future be less about geographic formations are more about people coming together on the basis of values. Uh, now, I don't know the answer to it, but I do think that, as I said earlier, a pandemic uh, creates one of those moments, particularly when you hopefully, fingers crossed, at the end of it, it's moving mm. from pandemic to endemic, where you just raise your gaze and you think a little bit about what the future might bring, what the next 30, 40, 50 years will bring. But I do think it will be different. Okay, Tim. Um, fascinating as ever. Not sure, really sure. I can add much to that at all. We, 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 but when will you know? I mean, how long? How long does it take before you actually realise that 
one era has ended and another one's begun. It's easy for historians, centuries later, a little more difficult for the contemporary um, historian. Indeed. I mean, one example, I mean, this is one signpost of many. Um, we think of the European Union as being fairly cohesive since 2004, I think something in the order of 2000, something in the order of 13 new countries have joined the EU. And so it, 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 you know, it's looked to be a thriving, growing, cohesive force in the world. And it certainly sets all kinds of regulatory standards and legal bars that seem to be transmitted as, as somehow underlying standards globally in many places. But there are countries, there are countries, you know, Hungary is one, Poland is another, where increasingly their political discourse is, seems to be drifting away from what you would call the core values of the <clears throat> EU membership. And one can imagine a time where the EU decides that it doesn't want that, you know, that geographic unanimity, and that actually, um, it might find it has more in common with other, well, it could be countries or indeed it could even be city-states. Um, for example, uh, here's a question. If you were running the European Union, would you not have slightly more in common with the sense of rule of law and the increasing acceptance of diversity and inclusion and equality that, for example, uh, 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 Singapore has recently taken. And my point is, I think there's more in common between the EU's values mm. and modern sing 21st century Singapore than there is between the European Union and and and, 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 and some of the memes coming from Hungary, mm. let me put it that way. So what happens to um, political power culturally, but, in but also in terms of values, where that goes, I think could be a real guide to the politics and economics of, 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 of the years ahead. You're right, it's too early to tell. It will end up in history books. But at least we got the radar sweep on site. <laughs> at, at least we can look at how values increasingly play a part in geopolitics. Thank you. Time for us to switch subjects. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. is Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University uh, in the bigger picture. Uh, Tim, we're going to switch. Uh, we aren't going to leave politics entirely out of it. We are going to look a little bit at contemporary politics. Indeed. I, I mean, you know, uh, I think we probably just have to reference Boris for a minute, but I, I also want to talk about uh, the Labour Party and some of the things going on there. I mean, it, it is extraordinary to me um, that whatever the outcome of uh, the inquiry into what has become known as Partygate um, and whatever is the outcome of the Metropolitan Police's investigations into the goings-on in number 10. What is really extraordinary to me about all of that is that it is not simply uh, a group of younger political advisors, let's say in the Prime Minister's policy unit, uh, or indeed simply the Prime Minister or some politicians, uh, or indeed simply um, civil servants, be they junior or, or senior. Mm. What, what, what has surprised me genuinely uh, is 
um, it seems to be that, that during certain parts of lockdown, even if, and I'm not familiar with every paragraph and sentence within the guidelines that were issued actually by the government, even if there were some sort of national security clauses that, 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 that provided officials and very senior politicians like the Prime Minister with what you might call a, a, a get-out-of-jail card, I am amazed that the culture seems to have gone so wrong at the top of the British government and that they're all involved, special advisors, senior politicians, the prime minister, senior civil servants, junior civil servants. Um, and, 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 and what the fallout from that is in terms of trust and efficacy and the reputation, particularly, I have to say, of the civil service, uh, boggles my mind, but that something has gone very wrong there. Yes. I, uh, I, I was away um, last week um, on holiday with an expat who lives in France, and of course, it, it's even worse when you can see your country through the eyes of somebody who's observing from outside, and how ridiculous they feel the UK looks at the moment. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I, you know, and I do think, just as I think, the United Kingdom often does diversity for example, comparatively well in comparison to many other countries on the continent. So I really actually think um, um, that we've done, we, we, we've had um, uh, you know, as good a pandemic as could, could be had. You know, we were at the forefront of, of, of you know, particularly our university sector, Oxford at developing the vaccine, AstraZeneca, you know, we had some major problems and made some major mistakes early on. But actually, we've come out of the worst aspects of lockdown, um, and and we seem to be ahead more than so many others. So, you know, talk about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. It's extraordinary. But um, and, and you know, and and the opinion polls show that Labour, uh, quite rightly, are doing very well. Uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party is doing well in the polls. Um, for several weeks now, he has been. Uh, uh, five to seven percent in the lead um uh but um not everything is going well in the opposition either and there's some, some really interesting articles in the guardian in recent days about ongoing divisions and problems between the the, the old hard left and and um, what you might call Keir Starmer's big tent approach to labor politics so uh, the former Labour MP Laura Piddock has resigned from the party's ruling body, the National Executive Committee, over the continued suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, um, and the and and the, and also the the Labour Party's acceptance. This is interesting, of the recent Tory defector, the person who crossed the House of Commons, Christian Wakeford. Uh, Piddock, you know, once seen, I guess, as a candidate to be leader of the Labour Party, and she lost her seat in Northwest Durham at the 2019 election. Um, but she was elected to NEC the, the, the following year. She re resigned um, uh, a day or so ago uh, because she thinks that the Labour Party is sort of becoming, I guess, a sort of decaffeinated uh, new Labour 2.0. And she's very, you know, as a very strident socialist, uh, she's very upset by that. Um, now, these wrangles continue to go on, and I don't think there's a group more depressed in the Labour Party than the hard left at the rising success of Keir Starmer. But where that anger 
because they are angry on the left that, that he's doing well and he's beating Boris and he's riding high the bolt. Where that goes and what we're going to see over the weeks and months ahead, I think probably does cause a bit of a headache um, for Keir Starmer and never underestimate um, uh, the hard left uh, from trying to have fun and games and cause what you might call some media may mayhem um, at crucial junctures. For example, as we move towards the May uh, local elections. But not all is well. Peace hasn't broken out in the Labour Party. Huge numbers of members are very angry um, at, for example, the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn. And they're, they're doubly angry um, that ironically Keir Starmer seems to be riding so high. Um, you point out regularly that you're, you're an optimist, um, but as you say, things are not right at the top. And one of the problems with that surely is going to be an increasing disenchantment with politics. I mean, perhaps since the expenses scandal, public public have been coming more and more um, disenchanted with our politicians and our political system. I mean, if if things were bad after that, they must be considerably worse now. I mean, is this actually dangerous if people lose faith in democracy? I mean, you're saying, you know, People who might want to vote Conservative might be completely disenchanted. People who might want to vote Labour seem to be sort of um, in much the same boat. People may be wondering what on earth to do or whether democracy makes any difference. I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question and, and I'm torn in my answer. There's one side of my brain, Simon, uh, where I, 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 I immediately have images of sort of 18th century uh, prints and engravings, or or, or later, yes. later, you know, Gilroy, Carl, you know, Carl, yes. Hogarth, Crooks, right? yes. yeah, you know, yeah. and basically, you know, what you know, what, what was represented in so many of those images was a huge public disdain against various political classes, stripes, and tribes. Um, so this sense of alienation of broad, you know, broad swathe the electorate from from their political representatives i don't think is new on the other hand and this is where i am torn i ran a little thought experiment with some friends um in the pub uh, a few nights ago i don't often go to a pub but i, I was in a pub on, on monday night and four of us were there and i think we're a pretty broad brush representation of British political voting habits. And I asked the question, and I asked it to myself, if you put your own political preferences to the side and you just think of the job description of Prime Minister and you look right across the House of Commons and you can draw any one person from any party, Plaid Cymru, SNP, you know, Northern Irish, you know, Labour, Tory, mm. Liberal, any of them, can you name any one person you think would do the job well? And again, I repeat, forget the politics, forget the party. What was so shocking was we sat there, literally staring into our beer, and it took us between five and ten minutes for one person to come up with, and I won't name the name, but it, but it, but it was a Labour front bencher 
who has a brief, and they chose this person on the basis that they hadn't messed up too badly recently. And then we all said, yep, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. But we didn't come up with anybody else. This chimes with something you said, I think, towards the end of last year when we were talking about Frank Field. And you said, you know, where are the, the big beasts of modern politics? Yeah. And, you know, we came up with a similar answer. We didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't Rather remember, disquieting. You know, but I mean, when, you know, years ago, there were big beasts, big characters. You know, yeah. Boris, you know, up to recently was a, a big beast and a big character. But the House of Commons had lots of them. They, they represented you know, 10, 15% of the chamber and we're bereft. So I find that our politicians, just in terms of personality, are somehow cowed and they don't have the charisma, the excitement, and therefore they don't get the following, I don't think, that, that, they, that they once had. Uh, Tim, let us take a brief break and change subject once more. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what is going to be our final topic? Our final topic is going to be uh, the way that the Office of National Statistics says that it's going to update uh, its calculation of inflation for quite some time. Simon, actually for several years, you and I have complained that national statistics, particularly statistics used by economists, are open to say the very least to question. Yes, yes. And, and for example, we, we once had a conversation a year or two ago about uh, the concept of GDP, of gross domestic product, and to what extent is it really useful um, as a guide to sort of actually lived and actually experienced growth. Well, uh, another thing that you and I haven't talked about, but we've, we've complained about in our private lives, no doubt, um, is the way that inflation is calculated. And it turns out that uh, in this country, when, for example, inflation figures have been calculated in, and, and for, you know, for everyday household items or shopping, um, you know, when, when a can of soup uh, has been analysed, or it's a bag of sugar, or 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 whatever. What has actually been uh, uh, monitored invariably are branded products, and not um, the, the, the 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 sort of the best value product mm -hmm. or the own brand products from whatever supermarket. And there's an extremely interesting person a man called jack munro who's written extensively on this he's sort of I, it, she's a lady oh a sorry good night yeah it's called jack but no she's mum yes oh so there we are in fact in fact that joins up a lot of dots because um two days ago i was watching an incredibly bright eloquent woman talk about this very subject on the BBC. And I spent about half an hour trying to find her name. Uh, it was probably Jack Munro. And I'm sure it was, because <laughs> I, I simply, when I saw this, I thought, oh, and there's a man as well. And yes, so yes, yes. Silly me. So it, uh, you solved it. I mean, so assuming uh, that, that, that Jack Munro was indeed the woman who I saw, who spoke so brilliantly and eloquently on the BBC News two days ago, then she has been campaigning on this issue and pointing out that, you know, from her own inflation basket, 
um, some things have been more than doubling in price. You know, the key point here is that we all have a different inflation rate. We all buy yes. different things. You know, some people have a mortgage. Some people don't. Some of the interest rates go up. Some people are reliant on a car and fuel prices have gone ahead, but others are not. Other people use a bicycle, so they're not affected so much by fuel increases. We all have individual inflation baskets. But for those people who um, uh, have you know, much lower, for example, disposable incomes yes. um, and who are struggling, uh, then there is clear high inflation and has been for some time on many of the, the staples and the things that they buy. And that's before we talk about energy or any of the coming costs in what seems to be an increasingly inflationary environment. So for me, as someone, you know, who, uh, to repeat, who, who you know, is, a, is a sociologist by background specialising in economics, I'm really, really pleased that we're having this debate, mm. that Jack has won the successes that she has, and hopefully there's yeah. more to come. It, it's impressive just how good she's been, I suppose, at, at, at making people aware um, of what happened. I, I believe at one time was actually using food, having to use food banks. Um, what's interesting is she's going to be calculating her own index, I believe, <clears throat> which is going to be called the Vimes Boot Index. Now, this will mean nothing to you because I know you only ever read serious books and fiction rarely, rarely passes across your eyes. But for those who, who might be interested, um, Terry Pratchett, the late Terry Pratchett, wrote this wonderful series of books called Discworld, which, while set in a fantasy world, were actually very good at reflecting the real world. And can I just like to read you a little bit explaining why it's going to be called the Boots Index and the um, daughter of Terry Pratchett has given permission for this. So this is <clears throat> the explanation from Sergeant Vimes, who rang the, the night watch in, in Discworld. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they'd managed to spend less money. Take boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50, but an affordable pair of boots, which was sort of okay for a season or two, and the leak like hell when the cardboard came out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork, which is the, the city he worked in, on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots, and in the same time, and he would still have wet feet. So that's the cap. Captain Samuel Vimes's boots theory of socio-economic unfairness. Um, I love it. Yeah, brilliant. I thought you might. I thought you might. That's a brilliant way of, of, of branding uh, what um, what Jack is doing. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it, and I'm, it's wonderful that, that, that the Pratchett estate, if you can call it that, uh, the, the daughter has given permission. But I think that it's going to be really interesting as that basket is calculated. Uh, because I think one of the things that social media is doing, of course, it's challenging previously unquestioned institutions. And um, I can imagine a time where, for example, for various organisations that are doing forward planning, um, will realise that they have uh, business models, they have operations, where it's more relevant to them to calculate future inflation 
on the projections of the work of someone like John uh, Jack Munro than it mm. is actually to take the official line. So if I was running the, 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 the Office of National Statistics and, and I wanted to keep my eminent and reputable position, I would feel pretty challenged in this. Mm. Um, and I would certainly want to deviate away from previously politically advantageous, um, uh, how can I say this politely, reduction of the numbers. I think there's an awful lot of truth-telling uh, to be done when it comes to yes. statistics. It will be interesting to see what the, the, the Vimes Boots Index actually comes up with, because you know, official um, CPI figure at the moment is 5.4%, but the old RPI, which we're no longer allowed to talk about, are used, apparently not fit for purpose, but that's already 7.5%. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, think, I think, you know, I think my impression of prices, it just if I think of fuel, food, you know, when my wife and I, when we go shopping or whatever, um, we often, uh, I mean, hell, you know, my wife's got a PhD in health, health economics, but what we often do is what we call the sommelier test, which is instead of really looking at the statistics or listening to any of the agencies, we literally put our noses in the air and we try and sniff what we think the inflation rate mm. is. And I asked her recently, I said, you know, what do you think your sommelier test is? And she said, I think inflation is between six and eight percent. Mm. Yeah. And if you look at the um, producer prices, input prices, we know what's coming down the line it's going to get pretty horrendous but tim um so uh, that was our attempt to to cheer us up do something a little fresher and more different fascinating as ever not necessarily as optimistic as we'd like to be um but that's been tim evans who's professor of business and political political economy at middlesex university in london tim will be back in a fortnight's time i'll be back with the bigger picture at the same time next week the bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.